The COVID-19 pandemic has turned our world upside down. Meeting this challenge is bigger than any Australian. From how we work and how we live. Stay at home. Stay at home. Stay at home. Don't travel. To the very basics of human interaction. Keep that social distance. If you're in an enclosed space, you should be wearing a mask. This is a time of total upheaval. It is a test of our nation. If you want this to be over, you've got to follow the rules. For many, 2020 will be the toughest year of our lives. And as we look to life beyond the virus, we ask, so now what? Today, work. It's at the centre of our society and often our lives. It's also been at the centre of our experience of the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, almost a million Australians lost their jobs. The closure of many non-essential businesses in Australia, like pubs and cinemas, led to an estimated one million people losing their jobs overnight. With each day comes more massive job cuts. The shuttering of stores by some estimates will see Australia's unemployment more than double to 11% in the coming months. 38 months of job creation, gone. 838,000 Australians having lost jobs. Millions more were forced to work from home. And at the height of the crisis, even the most hardened industrial warriors reached for a middle ground of sorts. There's been too much conflict for too long. Time to put down the, uh, the weapons and get into a room and work through some of these hard issues that in the past perhaps, perhaps people haven't pursued them as effectively because the economy was going much more strongly. Well, it's, it's under a massive test now and we can't afford that complacency anymore. And we can't afford to hold on to, to things um, that uh, at the end of the day just don't matter as much as people getting work. But with life after the virus beginning to emerge, what kind of work and what kind of workplaces will we find on the other side? Are we going to see better opportunities or worse opportunities for workers? Will there be more work or will millions of Australians still struggle to get the hours that they want? Will they reduce them voluntarily? Will wages, which have been stagnant in many countries, including Australia for years, finally start rising or is wage growth officially dead? These are very big questions. There are lots of them. I will need considerable expertise, so it's a good thing that I have it at my disposal today. Dr. Jim Stanford is an economist who heads up the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. And Don Price is tech giant Atlassian's resident work futurist. If they can't sort it out, no one can. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm going to need your help. Thanks, Waleed. Thanks for having us. Not at all. Let's start with the probably the second most discussed thing in the pandemic, and that has been working from home. Sydney CBD has become a virtual ghost town with so many working from home. If you can work from home, work from home. And we still encourage people to work from home wherever possible. There are some people who can work for home, from home and, and for whom this uh, period of time uh, has been less of a, an inconvenience to them than it has to many others. I can see the argument for working from home being something that happens a lot more, and I can see the argument for it being something that we abandon um, or businesses abandon at the first available opportunity. I might start with you, Dom. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, I think the combination of those two, Waleed, I think we've got to be honest, we've not really worked from home in its true sense, right? We got forced to work from home. And for many people, especially those in Victoria or other parts of Australia where we had other restrictions, if you've got your kids at home and you're trying to educate, you're probably not being a great work from homer, right? And I think we just need to be honest that the constraints of this time have been a little bit funky. But I think what it's opened up is a huge opportunity for people to access flexibility. 
not just in the way they work, but for employers as well, to think about how we we hire from a more diverse talent pool. That there's so many people excluded from work right now because of nine to five, Monday to Friday, and the construct of having to physically be in an office. And if we can tap into those people, it benefits those people, it benefits the company, and it benefits the economy. So I think what we'll see is a hybrid solution where it's kind of build your own adventure. And I think that the difficulty there is a lot of senior leaders are looking for the singular answer. Is it work from home? Is it work from office? Or, or what's the mix? What day can people work from home on? Whereas I think what we want to do is tap into people's flexibility and give them the chance to do the best work of their lives. It strikes me, Jim, though, that um, it might not seem like this to a lot of people, especially in places like Melbourne, where it's been a very long year. But we're dealing with a very small sample size, aren't we? A business is really in a position to make a judgment over how beneficial or detrimental their staff working from home is or flexible working is over the course of, say, five, 10 years of a business. Oh, you're quite right, Waleed. Uh, you know, it, it may have felt like a decade, but it was just a few months. And uh, as Dom says, it was under extraordinary circumstances. So I, I think it's very dangerous to generalize from the experience of the last few months uh, and try to say that we've somehow learned a big lesson about the future of work. I don't think that's true. We're lucky that uh, many of us have been able to work from home. It means they've been able to protect their incomes. Their companies have been able to get some work done. The economy has been able to operate at partial speed. So uh, it's been a very useful buffer uh, in that way. But it isn't typical. And uh, I agree with Dom. It isn't remotely um, high productivity uh, and working at the best of our capacities. So uh, I think from both the employer's perspective and worker's perspective, uh, there's going to be lots of reason for most of us to want to get back to our usual workplaces once it's safe to do so. Dom, you, you spoke about this idea that it's not an either or thing, that you know it'll suit mm. some people maybe some of the time, etc. But at the same time, if you're running a business, there is a kind of either or calculation, isn't there? Because you have to decide, for example, am I going to hang on to all this office space with all the costs mm. that that incurs rather than just say, you know what, I only need half of it. And th- they're hard and fast calls that you, you're going to have to make at some point or other. So when do you foresee businesses being able to make those sorts of calls and then the effects of that flow through to workers? I think the real challenge is you know, most knowledge workers, there's over a billion knowledge workers in the world, and, and you're one, Waleed, and, and Jim's one, and I'm one, right? And we, we have this privileged situation where we don't work nine to five. We, we probably don't actually have a physical office that you have to be in. And that's because knowledge workers don't work on a production line. And there's a danger there of a two-tier system but if you look at those knowledge workers, they don't need a physical desk and a physical hour to do their work. They're using their curiosity, their creativity, their empathy. And so the real estate question becomes an interesting one, which is, what does the office serve? What purpose does it serve in the future? Could it be collaboration space, educational space, where you collaborate on purpose, where you solve complex gnarly problems versus the traditional kind of execution of task? And so I think we've got an opportunity to split out what does work mean? Right, what are the tasks that I could do anywhere, anytime? And what are the tasks when I should be with my teammates and, and I do want that body language and the and the kind of serendipity of that water cooler conversation we keep on sort of memorizing and, and nostalgia being about? What does that look like and what does that mean for my people? And I think once you add up an aggregate workforce, you'll see a flow of people that actually want to work in the office for work. You'll see some that want to be in there to collaborate with their team for team belonging uh, and team building and, and cohesion and, and others that just don't. And I think there's a, a challenge there for senior leaders who are grasping for this idea that line of sight equals work, right? There's so many of the senior leaders that have been struggling in the last few months going, I can't see my people. How do I know they're working? 
And the reality is when you could see them, you still didn't know they were working. You could see them, but you certainly didn't know that they were actually being effective. I remember when I first became a lawyer being told that the second most used website in the law firm was Hotmail. That tells you how long ago I was a lawyer, but also it does underscore that point that you don't, some of the fact that someone's physically present in the office doesn't necessarily give you line of sight. Hmm. But Jim, do you think that there'll be, as a result of this experience, more or less a compulsion on employers to make work from home an option? Like, will, will employers become pariahs if they say, sorry, we don't do that and we expect you to be in here? I think it's very important not to generalize um, across the whole workforce this supposed dilemma about working from home. Uh, like, as Dom indicated, the reality is most people can't work from home. The majority of people in Australia's labor market don't work in an office. Uh, they have to work at a factory or um, a mine or a shopping center uh, or a cafe or a restaurant or some other facility that they have to be at. So, um you know, that's one thing to keep in mind. Another thing to keep in mind is that the majority of people who do work in offices are not doing that sort of very creative, free-flowing, independent, self-governed work that, that Dom was hinting about, you know, in terms of uh, creativity and collaboration and so on. The most majority of people who work in offices are told what to do by employers who are trying to maximize uh, the productivity and profitability of the work uh, that's going on. So, for some of us, and, and again, the three of us are, are lucky in that regard, we do have more self-determination and freedom in what we do. So there it might be a choice. But for the, real, the reality is, for most workers, it isn't a choice. For most workers, ultimately, um, they are going to have to go back to work. And um, in some ways, uh, I think they're going to be glad to, because there are obviously conveniences uh, of working from home, saving the commuting, wearing your pajamas, watching Netflix at lunch, etc., but uh, there's drawbacks as well, especially trying to juggle the demands of your paid job with your caring responsibilities around the house. So what about that diversity point that was raised early on, um, that working from home does unlock um, parts of the labor force that otherwise weren't? You know, that, it pro that providing that flexibility just means that there are people who can work in certain offices or certain companies that wouldn't have been able to before. There's a huge amount of research that's been coming out of the last few years that shows that, that cognitively diverse teams are more innovative, are more creative, generate more value over time, right? It, it's been proven by numerous studies. And, and, and when you can hire, not only hire those diverse people, but build an inclusive environment where they feel the psychological safety to actually do that work and to, to speak up, that the representation they bring makes your products and services better, right? Because in, instead of having a homogenous team that all violently agree and building something for themselves, you have this diversity that brings different perspectives, different experience, uh, different customs, cultures, understandings. That rich tapestry, if we're deadly honest, is a pain in the ass to manage. It's really hard because diversity isn't easy. But once you get it, the value you get from it is very addictive, both for the employer, the employee, and for the customer. That inclusion not only brings social good, but commercial good as well, because the science says they're going to be more innovative. I do think we have a conscious decision there as to whether we choose to go back. I think if we want to be competitive as a nation and as an economy and, and build a thriving workplace and a thriving community, we need to embrace the future, not the past. The thing to remember about all of these discussions about flexibility is, is the question of flexibility for whom. And anytime there's a negotiation going on between the employer and the employee over things like, can I work from home or can I have some extra flexibility in hours to pick up my kid from childcare uh, or any other measures like that, 
um, you have to take into account the sort of relative bargaining power of the two sides when they're having that discussion. And the reality is that even before the pandemic, there were far more workers in Australia than there were jobs for them to do, which meant that employers had the ability to pick and choose people depending on which ones were going to be the most in a way uh, compliant or a fit better with the employer's model of how the uh, workplace should function and, and meet the employer's expectations about productivity and work intensity and so on. Now with the pandemic, that problem of uh, too many people chasing too few jobs is much, much worse. You know, the latest data shows 17% of uh, the workforce is underutilized. That means they're either unemployed or underemployed. And even that doesn't tell the, the whole story. So we're gonna have a situation where for several years, people are desperate to find and hang on to a job. And they're gonna have zero bargaining power, particularly as an individual, to say to their employer, look, I work more creatively if I can set my own hours and work at home sometimes. You know, an enlightened employer might, in a particular type of work, might see the value in that. But the majority of employers in the majority of jobs are not. And that's where I think this idea that we're gonna enter a somehow a big more flexible, creative vision of work just doesn't recognize the realities of a dog-eat-dog labor market, which is what we're in right now. So, Jim, you've, I'm really glad you said that because it delivers us to probably the biggest, sort of hardest part of all this, which is the question of workers' rights, of industrial relations, of that power balance or imbalance, if you want to call it that, between worker and employer. And here I come back to you know, you know that moment that Scott Morrison said he, he booked to the table or the room. There was a bit of love in the air, uh, at least in Australia, for a period of maybe a week um, <laughs> with sort of, you know, this could be the next accord, uh, everyone putting down their respective weapons so that we didn't just come to industrial relations battles or negotiations with set positions that we just argued for, for political reasons as much as anything else. The, the picture you've just painted is one of effectively a hegemony of employers. They're just dominant and they'll be able to call the shots because people are desperate for work. Is that definitely what's going to happen? Or do you see some kind of accommodation in workers' rights, a, a more cooperative approach as we try to get ourselves out of a recession as much as anything else? Well, I think there was the possibility for a more cooperative approach. And as you indicate, Waleed, we, we kind of saw some flashes of it for a while. And, and some things were delivered from that. Remember back to the early days of the pandemic, um, there was all kinds of things that had to change very quickly in terms of enterprise agreements and the provisions of modern awards uh, to allow employers and workers to adjust the way they were operating and try to keep as much going as we could for a while. So I think it was more than just a, you know, a kind of a token effort. I think there were some real things delivered from that moment of feeling that we're all in this together and, and trying to uh, make the best of, uh, that we can as a country uh, out of it. Can you give us like a concrete example of that for illustrative purposes? Uh, well, for example, uh, modern awards uh, in governing, say, retail and hospitality work would have certain rules regarding hours of work and the the need for regular rosters so that the, the normal idea is workers should have some comfort level regarding uh, reliability and predictability in their schedules of work. And so at the moment when the uh, many workplaces had to shut down or shift to very reduced hours of operation, then there was a the question of, well, uh, what does it, what would the normal application of those rules mean? Would would stores and cafes be able to do that at all? Uh, or would some of the workers just be tossed out? So the two sides got together, the, the employers and the unions uh, facilitated by the ACTU, and 
there's over 100 agreements that got changed, you know, in a matter of weeks to allow for maximum flexibility to address that immediate need. Now, as the economy reopens, I think we're back to considering bigger pictures about things like casual work and how much employers can use casual work, wage determination and what we can do to try to get wages going again, uh, some of the uh, kind of regular industrial rights around collective bargaining uh, and that kind of thing. And as soon as we got to those bigger, longer lasting issues, that spirit of cooperation to get us through a crisis kind of disappeared. And I think that uh, employers in particular hardened their uh, hardened their approach to those. I was involved in some of those uh, discussions as an outside uh, expert and listened to some of the dialogue. And uh, I did get the sense that employers in particular uh, had an agenda. They hoped to see relaxation in some of the traditional rules about how enterprise bargaining occurs and so on. And when they didn't see that happening, they, you know, they just kind of kiboshed the, the whole process and it hasn't amounted to very much, unfortunately. So, Dom, is the crisis just not deep enough? I, I think, partially, I think you, you mentioned it before, right? There's a amount of time that you need to get used to this. I think, you know, for, for many people, we thought that, that COVID would just kind of come and pass and hold our breath for a few weeks, work from home, and, you know, this whole return to normal conversation occurred. Then we realized that we'll never return to normal. And I think we're, we're in that stage of grieving, right? We're, we're, we're trying to almost have a wake for the past. And, and celebrate and, and the heritage and the history of what happened before, knowing that it'll probably never be the same again. And, and, and I think we're fighting some of that. I think there's, there's a few realities that we need to face, right? Look at um, Amazon did this a, a year or so ago. They set aside a billion dollars to retrain employees that they were going to displace, right? And, and on our own home shores, you know, Woolworths recently announced that they're going to automate huge amounts of their supply chain and factory and displace jobs. So, so the jobs that Jim talks about, I agree they exist right now. But if we do have an eye on the future and we think about kids going to education and having a sustainable, scalable Australia where we all get to thrive, we have to realize that we've had some experiments in the last six months that did work. Right? We've seen companies that did pivot and change their entire business model and come out thriving. And we've seen people do the same thing. And I think one of the things that happened in, in, under that burning platform of change was we did come together and we did change some stuff. The problem is when that burning platform goes, we want to default back to normal. And, and I'm just hopeful that with the right leadership in the right places, we can actually really start to imagine what this future can look like and start building it today, and it'd be more equitable for everyone. And, and I think that genuinely, I don't think that's just a, a social belief or a hope. I genuinely think we can embrace that if we think differently. Can you paint a picture of what that might look like? Uh, I think one of the examples right now is long working hours. Australia is one of the worst, th it's in the lowest third of countries for long working hours. And during the pandemic, we've extended the average person's working hours by 45 minutes a day. So, so we're actually working longer. We're not more productive. We're just working longer. And at the same time, we're seeing epic rates of burnout, anxiety, depression. You know, there's a whole lot of negative mental side effects and mental health issues associated with longer working hours. Australia's peak happiness was in 2003. Since then, we've got wealthier. We've not necessarily got happier. And so how can we create a, a system where we go, well, first of all, how does the education system enable kids to come out with the right skills that we need for the future? How do we reskill the current workforce? Because that is going to need to happen. You know, I'm, I'm old enough to think that when I graduated university, I was told, you know, you became a lawyer, I became a chartered accountant. We both made mistakes. <laughs> but I was told if I became a chartered accountant, I'd have a job for life, right? Because at, at that time, that was true. But if you look at the industries most hit by automation and technology right now, law and accounting are two of them. 
Thank God I became an economist. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll be fine forever. There's, there's just highs and lows with that. It never goes away. But I, I, I think we have a chance to go, if we look at future skills, we look at impacts on jobs, we look at the economy and society and the community, we can find a way of balancing this. But we're so strict on the old constructs of, of working life and hours and money and productivity that I think we're actually missing the whole point of it. We're missing the point of, of happiness and, and, and effectiveness and contentment over am I productive and am I bringing in an income? One area that I think the pandemic has really thrown into sharp relief where the problem doesn't seem to be about, you know, workers having more hours demanded from them, but really it being on them to have to maximise their hours in order to survive, is that sort of hyper-casualised work, you know, the gig economy, very insecure forms of work, um, which has played a massive role in the pandemic, right? I mean, um, as much as we might want to get angry at someone who lied about working in a pizza shop or, or whatever, um, the underlying story it seems to me that's come up again and again and again is people who don't have secure work uh, and need the money who turn up to work when sick. And then as a result of that trigger a cluster, if not a wave. I just wonder what this whole experience is going to tell us about insecure work. The reality is that we were aware of uh, the drawbacks of this very widespread insecurity in work before the pandemic hit. Uh, we, we did research uh, a couple of years ago, which showed really less than half of employed Australians now have what we considered a kind of traditional permanent full-time job with entitlements like paid sick leave, uh, paid holidays and, and superannuation. So in a way, precarious work has become the new normal. And, you know, in, in some cases, you know, uh, you can see benefits from that that flexibility, but usually the flexibility is all on the uh, employer's side and workers are left scrambling to try to piece enough hours together to, to live on. Um, you mentioned the absence of paid sick leave for uh, insecure workers and casual workers contributing to the public health risks from the pandemic. Um, another way that uh, precarious work was a problem was through the um, uh, multiple job holding. Lots of people in those jobs try to piece together two or three or four different jobs. Especially in aged care and uh, in security, yeah. Yeah, so then they're carrying the, the virus around with them to multiple uh, sites. So I think there's lots of ways in which the pandemic shone a spotlight on a problem that we already knew was there. Uh, and I hope that we learn the lesson from that and try to fix it and, and recognize that, you know, if we treat workers like, you know, disposable productive inputs rather than as human beings, we can all pay a price for that. Uh, in situations like a pandemic. But I guess my point is where we pay that price is in highly exceptional situations, right? So you say in situations like a pandemic, well, yes, and maybe there will be another one, but it's not an everyday occurrence. I wonder to what extent we are likely to want to rearrange our system for those extreme events rather than for the day-to-day. -day. Like if... Yes, we've known of the downside of insecure work, but largely speaking, as a society and as a polity, we've, we've bought the narrative of its benefits. Do you think that COVID's changed that calculation? Well, we had lots of data before, Waleed, about the, uh, even the, the health impacts of working while sick. So this idea of going to work while you're sick is not new. 
And in the past, you'd just go and give everyone the flu or, or a cold. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, that's not good either. So not as extreme as the damage that we've experienced during a pandemic where the contagion can be deadly, but still extremely suboptimal and in a way that poses uh, costs on people who, who, you know, who don't deserve it, uh, both the worker and the colleagues that they infect by bravely showing up to do their job, uh, even though they're ill, um, are, are paying a price for that kind of culture. And uh, so I do think that there's a benefit, not necessarily just in another pandemic, but in day-to-day -day best practice to find ways to protect people and allow them to balance work and health and life in a better way. Dom, what narrative do you think we're going to buy as we come through this? Yeah, I think yeah, I, I hold two sides on this. What one is, whoever did the PR exercise on the gig economy deserves a medal because they did an amazing job, right? They, they sold a very positive narrative, and I think on the whole, a lot of that positive narrative has come true. They just conveniently ignored a lot of the downsides, which we're now experiencing, but we were experiencing them in an amplified fashion. Um, I, I think the reality is the gig economy and, and and that kind of contingent workforce came about because of a high rate of change. Right, that there are some businesses that lead a very conservative, very predictable model, but on the whole, and, and, and the pandemic's just an example of this, the, the businesses that thrive are the ones that are nimble, right? They, they can be agile and they can change and they can adapt to their environment. And, and that's what we're seeing in the most successful economies and the most innovative economies, which is where the gig economy helps, right? I have a spike in work, I bring in those skills, they service that demand, and then when that demand goes away, they go away. And so it can work in a, in a wonderful equilibrium, which is what the, the PR exercise tells us. And, and I think the pandemic just sort of shone the light on the shortfalls there. I think the reality is there's a, a good percentage of the workforce that will enjoy that. They'll benefit, the employers benefit. I think it's certain skills and categories of skills that, that fit into there. But I think where we need to be careful is this model that I fear we might fall into, which is that we stop thinking about people as people and we start thinking them as, as resources. Right. And, and that's when things start to go wrong. Right, When it's simple, a, a simple cost benefit analysis of this person is cheap, therefore they can do that job because they're the jobs that are not only most likely to be impacted by automation. So we we, we pull someone into that role and then the role disappears entirely. Or they're the ones where actually the, the lack of um, sort of, of, of servicing of, of, of the right, the correct rights and the correct treatment of those people is, is borderline inhumane. Right, which is which is what we've seen with some of the delivery services. Right, there's you know a, a sad news story recently about I think it was the five deaths in the last months uh, of Deliveroo or Uber or delivery service people right around the country, and you're like that's just not on. Right, there, there should be better safety uh, and, and better security for, for those people to return from work safely. And it's compounded by the fact that they're almost always non-citizens, so yes, they don't sort of feature in our political reckoning either. It then becomes a political question, doesn't it, about what we're prepared to do with or for it? Are we prepared to amend it? Um, do, you, do either of you see any political will, uh, any kind of political momentum or fashion that might lead us towards any kind of, I don't know, enhancement of workers' rights within that sort of area to make it a little bit more secure? I think there's always been like a secondary economy in virtually every single country I've ever visited around the world where it's like, here's the ones doing it officially and here's the ones doing it on the so-called sort of alternative market, let's call it. And so it's whether you want to try and legalize that and put some structure around it. It's the challenge with the gig economy where if you take the positives of it, the, the, the fluctuations in work and do it for good, then it's a win-win for both. If you do it to avoid rules, regulations, and, and, and constructs that make for a healthy sort of work-life balance, then, then you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. You're doing it for bad. And I think politically, it becomes a tricky one because you've almost got to choose between the two systems, whereas actually, I think the reality is a spectrum. 
right? There's, there's actually many dots across a, a broad spectrum here of what kind of work there is. But how we do that in terms of you know legislation, legal, tax, payroll, right? The minute you add all those things in, that's why those systems exist, right? To avoid all that, all that sort of uh, what, what seems like bureaucracy. So I think politically, it's probably a bit of a time bomb. Hmm. Well, it's not a coincidence that the workers who are most vulnerable to these practices are indeed, as as you said, Walid, uh, people who are uh, in a way deprived of access to the normal um, protections and benefits that come with the labor market, and and so there's a, a correlation between the existence of a desperate group of workers who are trying to find any way to survive, and then the ability of companies like Uber to attract people to jobs that don't offer regular hours, uh, don't offer normal safety uh, protections, don't offer normal entitlements like sick pay and superannuation. Uber wouldn't exist if there wasn't a desperate underclass of workers who have to do that sort of work in order to survive. Um, so um, where I think the political uh, the political struggle will become challenging is I think more and more Australians have experienced different forms of this precarious work, not just in gig jobs, but even in uh, in jobs in traditionally um, stable, well-paying industries like manufacturing and construction, where precarious work and labor hire and casual work have become uh, endemic. So more and more Australians are, uh, are experiencing that and realizing that they too uh, could be placed into a situation where they didn't have the normal entitlements and protections. It's not just a problem for international students to worry about. Um, but then that gets traded off against some of the kind of consumer benefits. People like the fact that it's really cheap to take an Uber compared to taking a taxi. Uh, and they like the fact that you can get someone to get on their bike in the middle of the night and ride up a dangerous road to bring you your fast food uh, for a very nominal fee. And you don't think the pandemic and the experience of you know outbreaks and so on, partly as a result of this labor model, is enough to change that consumer behavior? Well, I hope that it will waken uh, people up to the the kind of hidden costs behind that cheap Uber fare or that uh, cheap fast food delivery. Um, but uh, I, I think it will I think it will ultimately require workers uh, standing up collectively, including gig workers, and saying, "Look, we've been fighting over these issues for hundreds of years. The idea of a minimum wage." is not new. And you can't say that it's a form of high-tech innovation that you've discovered a way to hire people without having to pay the minimum wage. But that's exactly what uh, these gig businesses do. So, uh, you know, in a way, we're going to keep fighting battles that we've been fighting for uh, the last couple hundred years. On the political front, though, I note the Victorian government setting up a pilot scheme with the intention eventually of providing sick leave and carer's leave for casual and insecure workers. Insecure work is toxic. Insecure work isn't just bad for those who work under those uh, conditions. It's bad for all of us. So many workers have to choose between going to work sick or feeding their kids, paying their rent. That says something's happening politically, though, doesn't it? I mean, I, I wonder, Don, whether or not you think there's significance in that moment or this is like a news story we'll look back on in 10 years and go, oh, wasn't that funny? <laughs> yeah, that, that was nice. I think the fact that someone's willing to put their neck on the line and do this as a pilot is excellent. Hopefully, it, we give it a good red hot go and, and we actually get to learn lessons from it because most pilots don't work, right? They, they don't work as we expect them. It should be a, an experiment where we learn some things, we do more of them, and we learn some things that we shouldn't do. And, and hopefully, that's something that we, we do with this one because I think it's something that will need to be solved. And, and not just for Australia, but globally, you look at, I think in the US, the largest employer by role is driver. So Uber driver, truck driver, any form of driver, taxi driver is the biggest employer by role. 
and, and yet the biggest technology companies in the world are spending billions of dollars on autonomous vehicles, right? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to see that those two lines collide at some point. So I think politically doing this now is great. Because if we don't do it now, we'll be forced to do it later. And I think it'll be a lot harder to cure rather than... We, we should notice though, or, or note the deeply unrepresentative nature of Victoria in this regard. It's experienced a COVID wave like no other place in Australia. And so is perhaps more enlivened to this sort of thing. So, so Jim, do you think Victoria is just so aberrant that even if it were to succeed in Victoria, this just couldn't spread any further? No, not at all. I, I, I think you're right that the... The experience of Victoria with that second wave that they fought back um, uh, was un- was unique. And remember, that second wave was connected to the misuse of casual work uh, in terms of the mismanagement of casual workers at the um, quarantine hotels. Victoria had almost zero cases when this thing burst out. And the South Australia experience shows that uh, everyone's going to be vulnerable and they're going to remain vulnerable. When we see things uh, like um, the the food delivery drivers getting killed and not having any kind of uh, workers' compensation or insurance payments for them, uh, I think uh, it appeals both to the sense of fairness that Australians have, but also the sense of fear that that could be them. And because of the expansion of precarious and insecure work into previously stable, protected segments of the labour market, I think more Australians will support Uh, measures like this uh, Victorian case study um, to try and ensure that all jobs are fairly treated and fairly protected. So I want to start making my way now to the happiness and work-life balance part of this equation, but I I want to go there via a very unorthodox route and hope that you can shed some light on something for me. Um, I'm hearing, and I've heard this now too many times for it to be just isolated stories. This, This has to be a trend. From people I know who run particularly hospitality businesses, um, that they cannot hire anybody at the moment. So they've got vacancies, they're putting jobs out there, no one wants them. They're just not applying. Now, when you talk to these people who run, they say they run a cafe or a restaurant, right? They, you talk to these people, they say the problem is with JobKeeper. Uh, because you've got a whole lot of people who might be applying for these jobs who are currently on JobKeeper who just don't want to take these jobs now because they're not going to get any more money as a result and so there's a disincentive for them to work um i've heard one or two alternative theories around it as well i mean i guess i'll leave it for you to fill in what you think is happening there but it says something is not quite aligned in the attitudes to work that exist within our community particularly among the workforce so dom i'll let you have a go at that first what's going on yeah, I must admit, I've seen some of the same data points and I find it very confusing, either the hospitality industry or, or even recently in the fruit picking industry. And, and I know that was one traditionally filled by sort of backpackers and, and visitors. So maybe some of that contingent workforce was willing to work for less. But but it does seem at odds with the fact that we've got a large percentage of the community allegedly looking for work and desperate for work and a large supply side of, of, of people going, well, I have work, but are you willing to do it? And I don't think it's skills at the gap. And I think some of it could be attitude. Some of it could also be the fact that we, we've had quite a strange mix, right, of, of the types of people that did those types of roles are the ones probably most impacted by us closing our borders, right? So if you take you know, the, the backpackers and, and that sort of uh, international workforce that were willing to travel around Australia a bit carefree, as long as I get enough for, for a drink and sit around a campfire, and, and it's all about the experience, versus someone who's got a home, 
you know, a partner and children or, or, or a different lifestyle. And so you don't think it's as simple as JobKeeper being a disincentive to work? I think if you look at any system like JobKeeper or minimum wage, it, it, it means that my, you know, any welfare state, if I can not work and get paid X, right, it means that if I take a job, I want X plus, right? So you're always going to inflate things. Well, it's not a coincidence that the complaints that workers have lost the incentive to work and lost the work ethic uh, come from the sectors of the economy that offer the lousiest jobs, the lousiest pay, the lousiest conditions, and the lousiest hours. So that's the hospitality sector, the food picking sector, and other places where employers want people to show up and do what they're told and do it for cheap, and in many cases, do it for less than the legal minimum wage. So, you know, these sectors of the labor market have no credibility when they stand up and say that Australians aren't willing to work. What's What the real problem is, is the, the um, lack of uh, willingness of these employers to improve their offer, to make their jobs uh, attractive. JobKeeper is not rich. You're not living off high society when you're on JobKeeper. You're not even making the equivalent of minimum wage full-time hours. And if you can't do better than that to try and attract people to your job, then you should probably question your business model. So I hear that, Jim. But at the same time, you earlier painted a picture of a world where workers were desperate for work and employers pretty much could do whatever they wanted. If that picture was accurate, this wouldn't be happening, right? They wouldn't have to improve their offer that there would be all these desperate workers coming in to, to flood um, all of these job interviews. But but that's right. not happening. So either the picture that you painted before has some complications in it um, or it does come back to something like an incentive. Because even if you offer more than JobKeeper, I get that that's X plus, to use Dom's, term, uh, Dom's phrasing, mm-hmm. but it might not be X plus enough to make the difference between not having to work at all and working quite a bit, right? I I don't accept the claim, Wally, that there's large numbers of job vacancies going unfilled. Um, It is true that by closing the international borders, uh, the fruit picking sector and and other industries that depended on that particularly low-wage migrant work have lost some of their uh, traditional labor supply. Uh, But there's still uh, lots of other people who who are desperate to do those jobs. And the data on job vacancies does not support the claim that Australians are refusing to work and that jobs are going begging. What about by industry though? Because I keep hearing it. Like it's it's quite extraordinary how frequently I hear this from people who are running these businesses. I, I, they have a self-interested claim to complain that uh, people have lost the incentive to work. They have a self-interest in trying to get the government to, to claw back some of the income security measures so that uh, people will be more desperate to show up and do their job. And uh, some of the hospitality employers, like this uh, this uh, company that got called out in Sydney the other day for saying that uh, workers were, were lazy and that the worst phrase ever invented was work-life balance. Uh, they want to go back to an old school where uh, people uh, show up and don't ask questions. And uh, I don't think that should be our guiding light in terms of how we come out of this pandemic. All right, let's talk about that work-life balance thing. Because um, the other explanation I have heard for why these jobs aren't being filled or why people aren't applying in the numbers they used to is that through the pandemic, people have reevaluated what the meaning of work is in their lives. So they may forcibly have had their hours reduced. They've spent more time with family. They've then realized, oh, actually, I'm missing out on quite a lot when I do 70 hours a week or whatever it is. And maybe I just don't want to make work as central to my sense of self and my quality of life as it has been. I'd rather 
get paid less. Um, I don't know how widespread that is. It's just an idea at this point. Um, Dom, I'll, I'll get you to weigh in on this. Do you think there's potentially a cultural revolution here um, that might be about to happen about the emphasis that we put on work and the amount of time that we're prepared to devote to it? Yeah, if it was physically legal and possible right now, Wally, I'll give you a big hug. This is this is my kind of hot topic right now. I think we've over-indexed for years on this pursuit of, of what I call productivity or profit. Um, and, and the reality is we can only get to a certain level there. And, and what we need or, or what we're seeking is balance around people, like how we invest in society, the community, our own physical and mental health, how we invest in others, our friendships, our family, those, those meaningful relationships. Uh, we care about the planet. Um, you know, how we actually use this resource, this precious resource of the planet and, and not kill it, how we actually make that sustainable and, and scalable over time. And then we care about our purpose. Like what, what's our legacy that we leave behind? Like why do we even exist? You know, how do we contribute to the world and, and society as, as a whole? And I think what this pandemic's done is it's shone a light on that for people and gone, yeah, I'm working long hours or I'm earning decent money, but but to what end? I can I can buy more consumable things, but like what's the point? And, and actually, even in some survey results we did, we, we surveyed 5,000 people globally after the pandemic hit. There was a, an amazing response from the, the women in the survey who were like, they felt liberated from the status game of work because they were like, actually, now I can do two jobs really well. I've got my home job, which I get to do well because I'm not having to compromise it with work. And I get to do my work job well because a lot of the status, the, the, the kind of performance of being in an office had gone away. I appreciate the hug, by the way, Dom. Um, That's you're I, welcome. I do wonder though um, whether or not that's that kind of calculation that we've described there is a bit of a luxury so are we only talking about very small numbers of people who are even in a position to start thinking that way or, or is this something that genuinely could filter you know all the way down to the people at the beginning of their career you know just out of university or maybe not even going to university but um, beginning their working life might actually enter that whole phase of their life with a very different um, set of values about work. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, we, I, we released something recently called the personal moral inventory. And the personal moral inventory is in, in, intended to help you score yourself on that. And from doing that, what we found is there's a whole lot of people that don't need a huge income to be happy. They're like, these are the things I need in life, right? It's relatively basic standard of living. But actually, the happiness they get, the joy they get is from other things which aren't monetary, right? It's not but, part but of But we've that. known that for that's ages, just, right? We just, we just don't act on it. Yeah. Like, that's not We new. just don't act on it. But yeah. and that's why I think the the the, the uh, pandemic poured accelerant on on that to, for us to go maybe maybe there is another way of doing this and I think it's opened our eyes to that conversation whether, whether we drive change or not still open to but I think we're we're certainly having the conversation more. Jim, what's your feeling? Well, Dom's enthusiasm for the higher goals in life is very contagious, and uh, if I, <laughs> if I can use that term, contagious these days, uh, and I and I share it, and absolutely we don't we don't live to work, uh, we work to support ourselves so that we can pursue those broader things in life. But we have to get real about what life is like for most people in Australia. Most people in Australia fight to pay the basic bills uh, for their lives. So this idea of, you know, should I pursue maximum money or should I pursue self-gratification uh, is an absolute moot point for the majority of Australians. Uh, they have to try and find enough work and hope that they get paid enough for that work uh, to cover the basic uh, costs uh, of life. And that's getting harder and harder because wages have been stagnant and hours have been increasingly insecure and uh, precarious. So um, I'm all for that goal, 100%. Uh, but in order for that goal to be achieved, it's going to require more than a revelation on the part of workers that there's more important things in life than work. I think most people understand that. It's going to require 
a bit more power and a bit more security for them so that they can win enough money to support themselves comfortably and pursue the things that they really enjoy in life uh, in their spare time instead of scrabbling for survival like so many are today. Do either of you foresee the normalization of a four-day working week, for example, or some other kind of trade-off like that? It's been spoken about you know, for quite a while as a potential way of minimizing unemployment. So, you know, spreading the work across more people. Um, is any of this realistic, Jim? Oh, sure. Uh, and there's been uh, proposals from other countries as well. Uh, Finland, uh, Japan have had experiments around a shorter working week and uh, seeing some uh, great benefits in terms of uh, happiness and work-life balance. Uh, the problem in Australia is that we've got an incredible dichotomy in hours of work. You've got a group of uh, people who work long hours, as Dom was saying, who would probably appreciate uh, four-day weeks. Uh, you've got another group who don't get enough hours, a uh, very significant number. In fact, there's uh, more people working part-time in Australia than almost any other industrial country. We've really become a part-time nation. And it's not just that the hours are, are part-time, it's also that they're very insecure and irregular. If we could take some of the work from people who are overworked and share it with people who are underworked, we could all work a four-day week, and uh, and that would be a great position to get to. But again, that's not going to happen just because we want it to. That'll happen because we put policies and rules in place to make it happen. Because mm, it kind of runs into the point you're making about people struggling to pay their bills, aren't they? I mean, who's going to want to do a four-day working week and take 80% of their pay or something like that? No, and in history hours were reduced. You know, when we went from a six-day week to a five-day week and invented the weekend and got paid vacation and everything, that was during a time when wages were growing rapidly. So people could, in a way, um, reduce their working hours, but not see their material standard of living decline as well. Um, so in that regard, it's going to be difficult to get to lower working hours uh, at a moment when we it's hard to negotiate a 2% wage increase, let alone a 5% wage increase. All right. I think it's time for the watching brief. Um, there are a lot of questions that we've left on the table, obviously, um, but I think really quite well defined a lot of the fault lines in the future of our working lives. Um, what, though, is it that each of you is looking for um, that might tell a real tale here? Uh, Dom, I'll start with you. Uh, the, the thing I'm looking for is is an acceptance by all parties, government, society, business, community, whoever, to come together and go, if we're all going to have to reskill, both both the kids going through education now, but also people that are, feel quite comfortable in the workforce, how do we get ahead of that? How, how do we do reskilling now to prevent the, the, the outcry from it rather than, than cure? And I think we've got a great opportunity right now to do that, not only for people in terms of skills and longevity in the workforce, but also to make Australia sort of outperform on the international market in terms of innovation, creativity, uh, and our economy. And I think we've got a chance to do that right now if we embrace it. So I'm really hopeful that a collision of pandemic and politics and experiments and a whole lot of stuff brings us to this realisation that, that we own our destiny and, and we can plant some seeds now to build an even better Australia. Dom's the most hopeful, inspiring person I've spoken to in a long time, Jim. I, I want some of what he's drinking, Wally. That's all I can say. Yeah, because you you and I, I think, are a bit more Eeyore. Um, I think that's more our disposition. Um, so I think it, we need a bit more Dom around us, <laughs> I suspect. Um, Jim, what are you watching? I'm worried that uh, as the economy gradually reopens after the pandemic passes, and hopefully that's, you know, in, in continues in coming months, uh, with vaccine and so on. Um, I'm worried that we're going to get stuck at a level of economic activity that is well below what we're capable of. 
um, we won't get a full bounce back to full potential. Uh, instead, we'll kind of get stuck at a halfway point. And um, it's not just measured by the unemployment rate, which today is uh, 7%. That's very high. But uh, it, it's much worse than that because there's lots of uh, slack in the labor market that isn't captured in that official unemployment rate. The so-called underutilization rate that the Bureau of Statistics publishes is more like 17%. And broader measures of uh, underemployment say it could be over 20%. I'm going to be watching those broader measures of labor utilization. If they stay at very elevated levels, um, it's going to be proof that the economy is kind of stuck at that halfway recovery point. And then we're going to see continued downward pressure on wages and conditions uh, that we've been talking about. On the other hand, if the economy does recover, perhaps partly because of continued government stimulus and public investment and so on, then maybe we'll see that underemployment rate come down. And that could open the door to some improvements in job quality. Am I right in thinking that the underemployment rate got better in the last set of figures? Got a vague it did uh, in October, yes, October compared to September. But uh, uh, the combination of unemployment and underemployment is still very high, 17%. So we've got a mm. long ways to go. Dom, Jim, I couldn't have done it without you. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't have stood a chance. So thank you to both of you for your contribution. Thank you. Thank you, Waleed. Thank you, Dom. We'll see you next week.